Arts FM podcast. This is Scott Kesterson, and tonight you're listening to a conversation with Pastor Brad Cummings, part one. This war is real. Fighting is everything. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. Tempt not the righteous man to draw his sword. Conviction, righteousness, ruthlessness. To understand tolerance, you have to understand the line of intolerance. War is the teacher, soldiers are the students. They become the bards of war. Good evening, patriots. And today is Thursday, October 27th in the year 2022. Tonight we have the beginning of a four-part series of interviews with Pastor Brad Cummings. I think you're going to really enjoy these. We're going to begin with just some discussions about faith in this day, and then we're going to move into his research on looking at the 10 plagues and, and how they basically dethroned every one of the Egyptian gods and how that relates to today. So, Patriots, before we begin, make sure you're taking good care of your preps at home meaning getting food stocked up. We're heading into a time of shortage, and this game is not going to get any less intense. That's why we have Patriot Supply. Head on over to preparewithbards.com, preparewithbards.com, to get your three-month meal kit. These foods last for up to 20 years on the shelf. It's one of these things that's once you get it, it's a peace of mind to have, and there's no cost that you can put on having peace of mind. And right now, when you go to preparewithbards.com, there's a 20% discount plus free shipping. And they ship fast, and they ship in unmarked boxes. That takes care of any of those woke, crazy delivery drivers you just might have. So again, this is such an important thing right now to make sure we have enough food as a baseline for all that we're doing. And even if you have good preparations going, it's essential to have these sorts of fallback products like this that can last for up to 20 years with no worry. So pick up one for every one member in your family. That's preparewithbards.com. Get one of these kits for every one of your family, and you will be very happy you did. And no matter what comes, whether it's emergency issues or whether it's weather, fire, or whether it's a collapse of the economy, you have a fallback that you know that you can have food for three months for the family, which includes breakfast, lunch, dinner, and snacks and drinks. So again, preparewithbards.com, preparewithbards.com. All right, Patriots, so we're going to dig into this first part of the interview today with Pastor Brad Cummings. Here we go. Patriots, I'm honored once again to have my close friend, Pastor Brad Cummings, join us. And and today, I'm just going to be honest, uh, we're just going to have a conversation. I don't really know where this is going to go. Um, something to understand about Brad and I is that we have a lot of conversations they're not intended to do anything more than just enrich our love for the Father. And I just hope that today you can kind of get a glimpse at the way Brad and I communicate and talk and just process in this crazy world to always center ourselves back with the Father. So, Brad, welcome to the show. How are you doing? I am doing great. I uh, I am so excited to kind of dig into some of this with you because— I don't know how, I don't know, was it four or five months ago, you were always talking about Exodus 2.0. Yeah. <laughs> and, and I, and I, and I was just going like, oh my gosh, there's something there. I had never really thought of it, 
But I sat there going like, oh, I think that is brilliant. I I feel the resonance of father saying, yeah, this is something to really pay attention to because I am I am doing this. I want to deliver my people. And what's what's crazy is when you start to dig back into the story, I don't really think God repeats himself. You know, because like one of the things that I've really felt him saying is, you know, you're going to have to go live in your relationship with me. You can't do this on principles. And as much as I love history and love learning from it, you can't do this on history either because you haven't gone this way before. And I'm going like, does everyone else know that? (laughs) Well, I I think that's, that's, we, and I talk a lot about this, that we're kind of into uncharted territories and I think this is one of the struggles that at least I witness is when we try when we try to frame life with specifics and timelines or sequence of events that are leading to something, they end up falling apart so much because I don't think we're in anywhere in particular, uh, any particular chapter. I know a lot of people say we're in Revelation. I don't think we are. I think we're seeing a mimic of Revelation. But I think that where we really are right now is the most important thing. And you used the term right in the beginning, which is Exodus 2.0, which I find very interesting, compelling, because that was put on my heart years ago when I started it, uh, probably five years ago, and God just said, you're in Exodus 2.0. And I was like, I don't even know what that means. I've used it. But as I've kind of watched the world over the last five years, it there is definitely something about us leaving a matrix, leaving a control grid, reconnecting with the father, separating from the masters of enslavement. And it's different, but at the same time, there's parallels to the past. Yeah, and it's like there's there's incredible lessons, you know, about the past. It's like those who don't learn the lessons, our old adage is, is like they're doomed to repeat it. And it's like, it's not because it's a law, it's because God is looking to grow us up and mature us. And so if we're not going to learn, welcome to another lap around the mountain. And it's like, I just, I'm sort of tired of constantly going for another lap around the same mountain. It's like, I really want to enter in. I, you know, I was in Jordan a number of years ago um, and I texted one of my buddies because I was standing right at the place where Moses is supposedly buried and you're looking across to the promised land and you have the river Jordan there. And we're on the Jordanian side, which is totally Muslim. And I'm looking up at this moniker of this spot. And it, it's the whole picture of the, the serpent wrapped around a pole. And it's like, you would have to know a lot of sort of deep Christianity to understand that symbol right there. And it's 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 like it's 50 feet tall. And it has no explanation. But it is that moment in the wilderness where, you know, the people had sinned, the ser- serpents were biting them, and they knew that they were in trouble, and they cried out to Moses, like, help us. And Moses was instructed to put a serpent on a pole and to, you know, to make a bronze serpent. And it's the one thing that Jesus said just as Moses lifted up a serpent in the wilderness, so the son of man must be lifted up. And I'm sitting here going like, we're in a Muslim country. I have the most critical understanding of the cross displayed in a 50 foot thing in front of me. 
the wind is blowing and I'm hearing the Holy Spirit say to me, it's time to cross over. It's time to really enter in. And I'm, I, I mean, this, this was a moment. I'm just going like, I am having, I am having a Holy Spirit moment going like, gosh, the implications of this are huge, but I don't think a lot of us really understand. It's like, we understand things in history, but we don't realize like the cross, it's a lot of things, but if it's one thing that's clear, it's God's statement of my desire to heal you. Uh, that's, that's really well said, Brett. I think that there is so much propaganda going on. In fact, Dr. Merritt and I had, had this conversation recently about where she's even arrived at a similar point is that much of what we're dealing with right now is a psyop in the ca capability of this injection to convince us that it's worse than it actually is so that we will be defeated and feel we cannot be healed. I think that is a, a tremendous statement because that is so, if we are going to really be in this place and be controlled even when we think that we're, we're in this fight, we're not gonna be freed. We are, we're, we're anchored in a place where we continually are telling ourselves, and we've all done it with this vax. We've heard the mRNA story as an example. We've heard that it's modifying our genetics, that if you get it, and it's a, for everybody now, there's this massive division where we say, we well, can't come near you because if you are shedding, I might get it in myself. So there's division. There's this belief that this, that there's now a class of people that are doomed, that they have, and I, I've pushed this narrative too. I'm not saying I haven't but that they're doomed and that there's no healing them and there's no way out of this. And the work that I've been doing with Dr. Merritt lately has completely rewritten that narrative to say, no, that's not the case at all. That in fact, that this is something that they're putting in us, but it's not the way we think it is. They're telling us the way we think it is so that we will not believe in the power of the healing of God. I think there's something there and really to the core of this. Oh gosh. I mean, I remember the I remember the first time you and I really kind of became friends and we were talking about kind of some of this very stuff. And what um I hope people recognize about you, I'm gonna I'm gonna say this and so it's 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 gonna be good. Um <laughs> no, you know, I'm serious. You have an assignment from the Lord to utterly smash, expose, and confront idolatry. And I don't ever I don't ever want to um, soften that edge because I think that is so critical for us to really confront. Um, I'm more of the a, a more overtly compassionate healer focused guy. And so I don't have the same ferocity at the front gate that you do. And it's like, I'm wanting to like, well, I, I don't want to dull that in the least. And as you and I have talked more and more, that's the only thing that I've I've wanted to extend is, is the real recognition. It's like, wait a minute, God reveals so as to heal. You know, when, when he confronts us and it's like he's in our face. And I don't know if everyone's had that experience, but the truth is, is you want it. As uncomfortable as it is, I want God in my face because otherwise I don't know how to repent very well. And if I don't repent very well, I don't know how to change. And if I don't understand what he's like, then I don't understand the image that I'm meant to become. And so this is really an all-involved kind of process, and I need the both and. I don't need the either or. It's like when God is you know, addressing me, he's not like, you get an F. You know, here's your bad grade. It's like he doesn't care. 
He's wanting me to recognize what's wrong so that I can transact something with him. And, and as much as he's telling me what's wrong, he's right there to correct that and transform it in me if I'll let him. But if I can't deal with the evaluation, if I'm so afraid of being you know, corrected, evaluated, judged, and I run from that, then how do you ever change? And so my desire is to, to, to also show his heart that just says, hey, this whole thing. I mean, most people look at the cross and they go like, see, that's where this was dealt with in some legal punishment way. And I'm going like, um, yeah, there's some truth in that, but you don't understand. His heart was to heal us. Yeah. And I'm going like, I haven't, I haven't heard that message in my nice little evangelical church all my growing up. And I'm going like, there's something wrong with that if I don't understand the heart behind it. You've heard me have this dialogue with you. And of course, in the last couple of weeks, I've been really pushing hard on this principle of deep repentance as part of what I call taking inventories. And it, it's a real interesting process because I've, I've shared with you along this journey kind of what I've been doing. And it's, it's you know, taking a couple weeks, but literally granularly going through every aspect of my life and finding those, those chunks. And it's real interesting how unsettling it is when you find a well of something that you've been kind of <laughs> hanging on to and you don't know it's there. And, and you hit it and you try to, you try to do that. You just hit a key thing here a minute ago because you said knowing how to repent. So we do this kind of glossy thing. We're like, okay, Father, just, just forgive me for these things, wherever they are, and and uh, and, and, and I seal it and heal it. You know, and, and it's like. Yeah, yeah, a big gully washer. Just just wave the wand all at once. <laughs> right. Let's get it over with. And and it's interesting about this whole process is God's not let me do that. I'll, I've tried, trust me, a couple of times, and it. it doesn't work because then it's like, we're going back there. We're going to go back and you're going to dig and you're going to bring it before me because I need you to, I need you to speak it into the world. I need you to speak it to me. And I think that's profound because it's not, it's a father that's holding accountability because he loves you so much. I want you to be near the throne. Is that, I mean, that's been my experience. Yeah, but I mean, I, I don't know if this penny has dropped, but but for me, why does God need me and him together to look at my dirty laundry and see the skid marks? And and that's me. I did that. Why does he need me? Is is, is, is he taking a little puppy and sticking its nose in the in, in the little, you know, dirty stuff? It's like, no, he's not. He's actually trying to free me from the shame of it. Yes. Yes. He's he's trying to say, hey, guess what? Let's look at it together. And I sort of think that there's two looks of repentance that we need. I need to see what it is that I did and I need to not run from it. I need to not excuse it. I need to not come up with all the reasons behind it. There might be some wisdom in that, but most of us do that to justify stuff. And it's like no justifying, no rationalizing. Let's just own it. And so I need to see that. But then I need to look right in his face and see the fact that his love for me hasn't once flagged. It really isn't tied to how well I behave. Now, every other human on the planet, we all talk about unconditional love. I'm sorry, never experienced it. I don't, I, I don't, I don't think it's a human thing. 
I, I think it's only a, a Holy Spirit supernatural thing that happens when I recognize I can be free from shame. I don't have to hide from anybody. When I really know that in Christ, there is now, therefore, no condemnation. And I'm going like, oh, what, when did you experience that at church? You know, <laughs> when in the midst of our repentance do you get that there's no condemnation? And that's kind of like most of us are thinking, well, that just means it doesn't matter. It's like, no, no, it all matters. But when I've really transacted it and I really recognize the depth of God's love and the acceptance of who I am, warts and all, that is the most transformative thing. That's when you kind of can go like, I don't have to perform for him because one, I'm not going to fake him out. And two, he actually knows who I really am better than I do. So I don't want, the only one I'm going to confuse is me. And I don't want to be confused. I want to go like, hey, God, you know, why do I do that? You know, I, I, I find, I'm, 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 I'm back here again on that same issue. Why? What is it that I think I'm going to get out of doing that? Because what I end up with is a guilty conscience, and I'm frustrated because I don't want to keep doing that. That conversation is so incredible to, to actually let that play out because God will say, well, this is what you're you're reaching for. You're just reaching for a wrong thing that won't satisfy that. Why don't you come to me? And I'm going like, well, wh why don't I come to you? <laughs> I mean, I mean, I don't want to pretend like, oh, okay, I got it now. It's like, no, if I if I knew that, I would have done that. I didn't do that. So why in that moment did I not? And I've just felt like being being that naked before the Lord has been so valuable because he's starting to explain to me some of the pathways of thought that I've got to change. I mean, one of the meanings of repentance is to change the way you think. And it's like, Lord, would you help me do that? Because I got a bunch of, you know, wagon ruts on my dirty mud path, and I don't want to drive into them, but they've been there so long, I find the wheels just find their way back in there. So I really need you to plow up that field and regrade it so we can do something different. Because I think you're tired of me coming back up here. And, and I think what the Lord kind of says, not really. I just like when you come back to me. Uh, <laughs> you know, That's true. That's I don't true. think he's tired of it. and Because and, and, he just does not think the way we do about our stuff. Well, I think that's a critical thing right there, Brad, which is really fascinating because we do humanize. I mean, even in the sense of the term anthropocentrize, anthropocentric. We put an anthropocentric view on God that he is somehow, and you said it earlier, how he, we are like him and we're not, he's, we are, we are not like God and he is not like us. And yet we are in his image, but we do this thing. We humanize him so much. And that's where it even complicates the concept of repentance more because we're like, I couldn't forgive that. That's not us to say. This is the process, this deep, deep process that when we dig in and we're putting these things before God and we're finding out this unbelievable love, but it's in that process like I've talked about and you just hit on it, we have to speak it. We have to have these conversations. We have to have the courage to just literally rip that thing open and look inside and then ask for that question of why? 
Why do I do this? Why did I do this? What was leading me to do this? And, you know, some of these things can be in, this was another thing that I was kind of working with this, these last, this last week. And so is, was literally like, what is big in my life would be small to another person or trivial by comparison, the Jeffrey Dahmer versus, you know, I, I, I stole a, a mint from Sally in, in fifth grade. Right. But my point is that in the, in the sense of things and with the sense that I get in with God is it's hard for us to process the idea that all things are essentially equal as we have the courage to present it before him. And he has the ability to work with us to heal them. Yeah. I mean, it's like, is all sin the same? No, it's, it's not in the fact that um, it's not punished the same. I mean, we, we look at, we look at it in the old Testament and it's like, there's some um, sins that resulted in death penalty for you. And you just go, well, that's a more serious one. The, the others were just like little sacrifice things. And it's like, but, but all sin has this effect. It all separates us, not God from us, but us from him. And, and so in that way, it's like, it really doesn't matter what you did because there's nothing that you did that he can't undo. You know, there's, it's like, you know, well, you know, what's the unpardonable sin? Well, the unpardonable sin is my rejection of the Holy Spirit's desire to change me. It's like, you know, some people said, well, that's when you call the work of the Holy Spirit, the devil. And it's like, well, yeah, but guess what? A lot of people have done that. And God still heals and saves them and, and, and grows them up. And they realize, wow, the way I thought before is different because now I recognize that was, that was my just being uncomfortable and I didn't understand it. Now I go like, Oh, that's, that's the work of the Holy spirit. So that's not the unpardonable sin. I think the unpardonable sin is when I, when I, I refuse to allow his work in me. And it's like, well, that stops it. Um, I think God has the incredible capacity to absolutely save us to the uttermost. And I think the reason it's important to recognize that, you know, we were talking, it's like, you know, for two months at one period in my life, God said, I'm not like you, Brad. And I heard that as nothing but criticism. And I'm going like, well, thanks a lot. I, you know, I did like you. <laughs> you know, now, if that's all you're going to say to me, then it's kind of discouraging me from trying to do this. And I'm going like, as far as I can tell, God, I'm one of the few guys that's really pursuing you. So you ought to be a little more kind to me. And and, and I had no idea what he was trying to get at. And I, I, I didn't realize that, you know, I had theorized some realms of what I thought about God. Like I had projected my best self to its nth degree. And that's kind of what I you know was trying to grasp. God was like, and God wasn't upset with my effort. But I think he really needed to help me realize, guess what, Brad? I'm better than that. Your best self to your nth degree, as nice as a thought that that is, and as nice as an attempt of yours to understand and grasp me, it still falls short of what I am and who I am. And I'm going like, well, that's nice, but here's the problem. I have no frame of reference. If you don't somehow come and encounter me in a way that changes my math, I I don't know what else to do. And that was the point where it's kind of like, hey, let me do that. And 
I think to some degree, I don't think we recognize the Pharisee in a lot of us, especially if we're trying to do good. And I can really try really hard and I can actually feel pretty good if I can come up with some nice, you know, righteous results. And and I don't think we recognize that that can actually be a block. Absolutely. That that can inhibit because I can I can somehow kind of feel, I don't know, self-satisfied that I'm doing pretty good. If, 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 if you can be diligent and you can know stuff, you can memorize stuff and you can put some good days of behavior together, you can become pretty, you know, self-righteous. We wouldn't say it, but we, we become that. And well, there's a, there's a part to this you're, you're treading on, on the edge of, and I think it's worth bringing in. And it's this, I am not worthy piece, which becomes an identity. Okay. And I think that when, and I, cause I've encountered this where I'm not worthy is almost like I'm not worthy, meaning I am more worthy in God's eyes because I acknowledge I'm not worthy. And we, we get into this thing. You like, caught your tail. Nice. <laughs> I'm like, this is kind of ridiculous, but you know, and, and this is it again, it's, it's a, we've created an idol within ourselves, right. Of, of praise and of, of and it's, this is where well, it's, it's it's a learned religious behavior. I don't think we would come up with it on our own. I think it's like somehow we've we've been we've been taught it that somehow that's the way I should think. Like, you know, Lord, we're not worthy of you. And it's kind of like we're the only ones that say that God up in heaven is not saying, hey, you're not worthy of me. I mean, I, I, show me that verse. Right. Well, and, you, you know, we talked about this because that's Luke 15. That is Luke 15, I, and I love Luke 15 because it talks about the two sons, right? And, right? and it talks about them coming back to the father, and the younger son, as he's walking there on the trail, the father is running to him. And when he comes to him and the son has the absolute courage to say, Father, I have been, I'm unworthy of being your son because I've squandered my inheritance. Please let me be a slave. It's like, Son, I'm just happy to have you home. You were dead until now, right? And and we and this is where it's like it's right in scripture telling us that we are very worthy in Father's eyes, and yet we go in and we do this mantra. I'm not weak because I don't do it, but I'm like people do this mantra. It's like I'm not worthy, and the only reason you do that, in my opinion, like I said, is you created you've created an identity within the structure to say that is how I am greater in God because I am saying to myself that I am worthy of God. And it's like, no, that's it. it, It's our little sort of, you know, virtue signal to self. Yes. I mean, I, I, I really, I really think it is. It's kind of like when you think of the way that if you listen to, I'm going to do a sacred cow right here, going to roast it. Um, (laughs) In most of our praying, Watch how the word, the insertion of the word just happens. Lord, I just, it, it's it's like, as opposed to having a real demand, we're sort of apologizing for even being there in our demand. It's like, Lord, I just this, or I just that. And, and you're just going like, why do we, why do we have that word inserted in there? Because it, it is revealing to me that you don't, you don't have a confident access point here. And I don't think you come here often, and I don't think you look at him when you come here, because I think he would correct that one saying, drop the just, what you want, 
And do you realize I want you here all the time? But Brad, isn't that, again, this is what's so amazing is that is right in Luke 15. It's Luke 15. It's actually down in like Luke 15, 25 or somewhere in there. And when the, when the older son comes to him and says, I'm not going to see my brother. I've been working diligently. You're, this this son, son of, of yours. yours. Right. I'm not going to see him. I've been working diligently and you've never given me anything for it. And then he just looks at him and he's like, son, you have always been with me and all that is mine is yours. And it's like, all you got to do is ask. We, we, we share. It's there. It, it's amazing because we have built up a, an incredible wall between us and what is in, in the true and deep relationship with God. And so much, in my opinion, stems from the fact that in this matrix of this world of control we live in, Satan's one of Satan's greatest tricks was to put a value on everything in God's world. And it's monetary. And it's become obsessive in this time. So where there's nothing that... Oh, that's good, dude. That's... You know, we, we, that's that's insightful. Yeah, we just we sit here and we look at the world and like we can't look at anything. I mean, I can do it right here on my desktop. I'm like, oh, I know how much that cost me and that cost me and that. Our whole world becomes that, and and this this barrier. Mm. Like when we pray, the minute that we we even visualize dollar figures, it's like God doesn't provide dollars. He provides provisions. He provides the the things that we need, whatever form that takes. And we, and I don't even know how heaven translates the dollar request, to be honest with you. It's like, can we transact Babylon in heaven? It's like, no, we can't. The angels are probably looking at each other like, what did you ask for? <laughs> well, you know, it's like, uh, hang on a second. We got to call in that other expert. He, they said something about $50. Can you guys handle that? You know what that means? I have no What's idea. What's a dollar? Yeah. No, I, I think that's profound. I, I imagine for, for most people hearing this, they're just going like, oh, stop it. You know, as if, you know, you're, you're just having wordplay. And it's like, I think the reality is, is I don't, I don't think we realize just how conformed to the image of this world we really are. Yes. And the way in which we understand it and the, and, and, and we project that stuff on God. And I'm going like, you know what? Unashamedly, he and I are pretty good friends. And I hear an awful lot of things that are said about him that I go like, that's not him. And I'm not, I'm not, I'm not doing it with a like massive judgment, like wrong, wrong, wrong. I'm just going like, no, he's not like that. And 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 so I think one of the, the challenges is how do we demonstrate, you know, like what Romans 12 talks about is like. We're supposed to sort of be transformed by the renewing of our mind as opposed to being conformed into the image of this world. I'm supposed to be transformed. Why? What's what's the benefit out of that? Well, two things. I'm supposed to present myself to God as a living sacrifice, not a dead one. There's one that, that's uh, able to say, hey, let's get it on. My life is yours. You, you gave me your life. I'll give you mine. That's the full exchange. And then if I will get my mind renewed, I then have the, the, the wonderful outcome of knowing what his will is, his good, his pleasing, and his perfect. And I kind of see that as the three concentric circles of a bullseye. You know, most everyone's like, well, you know, how do you know what God's will is? It's like, um, it's not as difficult as you think. If you would come to your come to him and just say, hey, God, I'm going to do this full real exchange, not not the layaway plan, 
not that here's a little bit of my life and here's a little bit more of my life, but you gave me all of you. I'm now going to show up and say, I'm going to give you all of me. And would you change the way I see things? Would you change the way I understand things so that I can be renewed? I can be transformed. That word is metamorphosis. It's like, turn me into that butterfly. I don't want to be a little caterpillar that's landlocked and then running around. I, I and, and it's just food for somebody else. Change me into something supernatural. And then God, point me where you really want me. You designed me. You purposed me. I'm not like any other person on the planet. You have something very unique for me. I'd love to know it. And I want to do it. And so give me the resources to do it. And that's a whole lot different than uh, how do I set up my 401k, get my pension, kind of, you know, make enough money so that I feel secure. It's like that's the, the that's the image of this world. It is. And we've been given a whole path that I just go like, you know what, as someone who's walked that I'm 56 and I'm going like, dang, I wish someone would have got a hold of me 30 years ago before I wasted a whole lot of energy doing what was responsible. And what I you know, was told is wisdom. And I'm just going like, I just played right into their hands. I, I had no idea that at the end of the day, this is part of their, their Ponzi scheme that it's not really yours once you hand it over. Well, and part of this, this plan, this planning that goes on in this world, we have been conditioned to believe that we need to plan out every step. And when we do that, and I'll take a business plan as a great example, the tar- tar- typical business plan, we do the market analysis, we do the potential analysis of the product you're offering. We look at the investment costs and go on the list of stuff. None of that is inspired by God. All of that is manufactured by us, right? Masters of the illusion of control. Exactly. So we get to this place where we, we've built this whole, this literally building a castle on sand. And we're, we're running into it. And then when it starts to fall and it starts, to, the pieces start to shed, we're, we're struggling with why it's happening. And this is usually when we turn to God the most. God, fix it for us. But fixing it, if we truly trust in him, may be tearing down that entire castle and going a different way, right? Scrapping the plan. It's like, dude, I didn't start with this plan. And part of that is, too, is at the very beginning is the greatest step off in, in anything we do in our life is... The other side of that is we pray and we want to listen to what God wants us to do, and we we should, but there still has to be forward motion. So somewhere along the way, it's kind of like going into the mountains. And I, and I think back to this one particular great hike I did in the Tetons, and we came up to a, a very, very real and very literal split in the trail. One of that, one way took us almost another half a day to get to where we wanted to go. And the other way took us up through a draw in the valley. That draw was completely packed with snow. And we weren't equipped to go snow hiking, right? But we did it anyway. And in the process there, it led us to somewhere we didn't expect, which quite literally is one of the most beautiful, like, oasis. And, And we sat there and we camped in between two ponds and we we're like, we were trying to kind of, we knew where we were on the map, but you visually hadn't put it all together. And as we <laughs> walked out of the valley that next day, 
we turned around and Brad, we were right behind the main peak of the Tetons. Oh gosh. And all of that, because we took a route that was, you know, we just trusted in like, okay, this seems to be the best way. And my point of that is so often this is what happens is because we try to do the, okay, this particular technical route might be easier to do or for whatever reason. And instead we don't take that route that has the snow because we we don't we're trying to plan everything out but God's route takes us wherever and leads us ultimately to the greater places if we simply start that's the big step there is take the step forward and do it right yeah it, it's interesting a, a, a buddy of mine who is massively helpful in helping me learn to recognize the voice of God and to grow in confidence of the two-way communication he, he said, you know, a lot of folks are sitting on the launching pad of life waiting for the clear instructions. Well said. That and, is so and, well said. And he said the guidance system actually does not kick in until the rocket is like maybe a thousand feet in the air. There's no need for the guidance system while the rocket's on the launching pad. And until it gets to about a thousand feet, you don't know that it's actually launching. So the only focus between zero and a thousand feet is launching. And, and, and he, he made a little joke. He said, you know, two thirds of God's name is go. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. And and, and yet the, the, the great, you know, the, the, the the great commandment is sit ye therefore in the way that most of us do this. And I'm going like, it's not. It's go ye, and 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 the reality is most of us don't want to go until somebody gives me a triptych, and tells me the the very next you know from point A to point B, and you know truth and packaging laws for disciples, it doesn't work that way. No, it does not. At all. I mean, it's like I, I you know the, the the planner in me would love for it to work that way, but but the honest reality is it doesn't because, and and wh- why doesn't it? Well, because of the mercy of God. God, to whom much is given, much is required. The clearer God's communication, the the greater the penalties for disobedience, and the more accountable you are. So God's actually waiting to go like, you know, do you want to do this? And we're like, well, what is it? And it's like, no, do you want to do this? Well, Lord, I ask you, what is it? And it's like, no, he says, I want to see if you have the heart to obey before I tell you what it is, because if you don't, then there's no point in us having this conversation. And I, I think most people are like, well, I don't like that. It's like, well, guess what? You're not God. So you know, get over it. Um, that's actually mercy to us. And I've learned to go like, wow, then, then help me learn to grow in trust in you so that I can say yes before you tell me. Cause it's interesting in Hebrew and this is just bizarre. The word to hear and to obey are the same word. And you just go like, that has its own profundity. And it's like, Johnny, take out the trash. And Johnny's in the midst of his video game, and he's real focused. And it's like he asks himself the question, did I hear my mom say that? And if he has the heart to disobey, it's like, oh, I didn't hear. <laughs> and and 
I don't, I mean, I, I don't think we're actually thinking that through with the living God the way we do. But I think to some degree, it's like, hey, God, I've got this great plan. I, I wrote this script for my life, and I'd really love for you just to approve it and do it. And I'm going like, guess what? I, I have ripped up a whole bunch of those scripts and said that was a dumb script. And I've realized <laughs> God actually has a much better plan and I'm actually more interested in saying, "Hey, what's your what's your plan?" Because I I'd like to I'd like to do that. I think you know me. I think you created me. I, you know you know how you've gifted me. You, you know exactly what I'm for. I kind of am fuzzy about some of those things. Could you put me in the area where I start to click in and I start to understand? And I'm just going to say at the front end, I don't care what it costs. I don't care what it involves. I think following you is the greatest reward and will lead to the most amazing adventure. And so I'm going to say yes now. And so as I say yes, fill in the pieces that I need to know. And I think God speaks on a need-to-know basis. And I often feel the need to know, <laughs> and he often vetoes like, no, you really don't. What you really need right now is to do the thing I told you, which is the next step. And if you do the next step, that will then bring us to the next point where I'll give you the next step. I think that's so important. And I think this is what trips so many up. It's that trusting in just the next step. You know, I've talked to you quite a bit about an early part of my life when, especially heavy in the martial arts, when I did a lot of practice in Zen, Zen Buddhism. And one of the things that I still diligently work at, which is so powerful in that whole practice, is fully 100% living in the moment, embracing all that happens with us in that moment. And there's a universe that happens in that moment. There's a, an incredible experience when we are literally walking in our moments to realize the incredible gift, the glory, the beauty, the perfection, the challenges, everything that is right there in every moment. But we want to race past the moments. And that's like skipping chapters in a book. And, it, and when we do that, we, it's like, I did it the other night, so I will honestly say this. It's like I skimmed through this new version of The Lord of the Rings that's on Amazon. And I, I told you that I did like a high-speed watch of like three hours yeah. of like, you know, seven hours of film or two hours of seven hours of film. And, and you get the bits and pieces of the story. I wasn't looking to know the story. I was looking for certain things. But you miss everything. I mean, the, the whole the narrative flow. You, you and then and then literally, like you get to like you know your two episode, three episodes in, you're like, what, where did that character come from? Now you got to go back, and you got to kind of figure out like, okay, I see what you're doing. So we think that we're doing ourselves a service by looking ahead, and we're not embracing and living in the power of the moment, which is one of the greatest gifts God gives us. Yeah, you know, I I think we have a false notion. That somehow when we say, you know, God is in control, that really we're just life is a rerun because it's already been decided. And I'm going like, you know what? I think this this will, you know, people don't have to agree with this, but this is what I believe. The future is defined as an event that has not happened. I mean, it, it, it that's his basic definition. So if it's real, it hasn't happened. <laughs> yeah. Okay. So it doesn't matter how great your computer is and the way you fill out probability. All you know is probability. It hadn't happened. 
And so the reality is, is the future is still future. And God did not say, I will be what I will be, or I was what I was. He says, I am that I am. He is profoundly in the present tense, everything that I ever need him to be in the present tense. And that's the only place in which I really get to go live and relate to him. Yes. And what you're saying about Zen Buddhism, I'm going like, okay, people go, well, that's Zen Buddhism. I'm going, that's just true. I don't, I don't care who it was. I don't care if it was Buddha, Zen, or, or whatever that is. Part of me is going like, what you just said and what you just described is something I believe is absolutely true. God's with me in the here and now. When I, when I have um, been at pains with each one of my kids, at one point when, I, when they're old enough to kind of start to get this, I, I taught them how to live in the present and how to be fully present with me in that moment. And I did it because I wanted them to be able to ask God a question in the present with me, and we could both hear the answer, and I could affirm for them, yep, that's him. And because I don't think most of us do this, and I don't, I don't, I don't remember where I learned how to do this, but I just kind of went, you know what? I want you to look me right in the eye, and I don't want you to look away, and I want you to come fully present, like you know, as opposed to living two inches back. I want you to come fully present in the moment where you're not hiding from me. This is your dad. I absolutely love you. Look deep into my eyes, spirit to spirit. And and when you know it's like it, it took a few minutes for them to kind of hold my gaze, but when all of a sudden they could hold my gaze, I said, "Can you feel that?" And we could, both of us could. The, the the atmosphere is is inhabited in that moment. And I would say, now God is with us in this moment. He said, "Where two of you are gathered, gathered together, together, I am there in your midst." I said, "Ask God a yes no question." about what you care about the most right now. Don't ask him an open-ended paragraph answer kind of question. Just ask a yes, no question, because the Old Testament priest used to have this bag of, of, of rocks around his you know chest on, on a little noose, and he'd hold it right in front of his heart, and it's called the Urim and Thummim. And when he would go into the presence of the Lord, he would ask a question, a yes, no question, and one of the rocks would glow. And I'm going like, okay, why is that even in the Bible? Why do we learn that? What's that for? And I kind of went, I'm going to ask God a yes, no question, and I'm going to see if he can incline my heart in the direction of yes or no. I, I don't have the faith to hear paragraph answers or to have, you know, technicolor experiences. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to break it down into simple little building blocks of understanding, and I'm going to ask him to incline my heart in that direction. And when I, when I, when I can live fully present in that moment— my capacity to hear becomes active. When I'm hiding two inches back, it's like it's muffled. I might be able to hear something, but it's like, mm, mm, mm. I mean, it's like I, I don't have any kind of clarity in it. And it's not like it's a it's a technique, but it's a way to not hide from the Lord. It's a way to come and say, you know what? I'm going to, with all that's within me, try to connect with you. And I'm not going to hide, and I'm not going to pretend I know the answers or even what to do. But I'm going to tell you the things that concern me, and I and I want your wisdom. I'm asking for help. D do you think the heart of the father is going to miss that moment 
he's going to say, well, I'm too busy. It's like, no. He, he desperately wants that. And if we'll learn to kind of come to him like that little kid and we can get our gaze fixed on him, you know, I don't think there's a more important skill we could ever try to communicate to people than to grow their confidence and their capacity to hear and then to stimulate the two-way dialogue. Because it's like, guess what? Whatever guru guy that you're drafting off, that you're learning from, in the life that really matters, that's your life, he's not going to be there. Not in the critical moments when you have to make decisions and they're consequential. The one guy that will always be there is the one who lives in you through the power of the indwelling Holy Spirit. That's the one guy you really get to know the best. And to follow, and anybody who's trying to help people in this world, help them get to know that guy so they don't wrongly lean on you or depend on your voice, because that's not going to be helpful to them. I mean, it says in, in, in 1 John 2, it says that each one of you has an anointing that abides within, and it freely teaches you all things. And that's he's speaking about the Holy Spirit. And it's like, there's not a single born-again believer that doesn't have that Holy Spirit dwelling in them so as to guide them. And once you get confident that, you know, it's like you're starting that conversation, game on. I mean, good luck turning that switch off. To me, that's the most amazing, that's the thrilling part of this journey. This all kind of brings up another aspect of repentance, because we've been talking very much about repentance from acts that we do. And in this relationship, that's a very specific type of dialogue we've been having with God. What few people know is your gift that God's given you in the pursuit of dealing with, of being able to work with some very big names in Hollywood and big names around the world. And you have worked with these people to help them find Jesus, and even some that are part of even some of that dark occultist stuff in Hollywood. I, I'm really curious in this conversation, when people, when we work in a process of repentance and healing, what are you telling people that have been victimized? Because this is a different optic, because there's a guilt that's placed upon them. There is a brokenness that happens within them how are you working through them in a process of repentance and healing in God to be able to step away from that pain and to literally heal? Oh, that's, that is a phenomenal question. I do think that's a hard space for a lot of people to emotionally get through because um, I think that the, the biggest gift that any of us could ever learn is the essence of what it is to forgive you're going to need it for yourself and you're going to desperately need it to deal with all the crap that other people do to you. You know what I mean? It's like, I don't have control over the ways other people have sought to harm me and they have, I mean, and, and it doesn't really matter. You know, somebody done me wrong song. Mine is mine and it's hard. Anybody else's is theirs, and it's is equally hard. I don't need to compare mine to theirs. And so the, the, I think one of the problems is, is we take comfort in our victimhood. 
You know, it's like we allow that to be the reason why I can't actually do the things I, w- I want to do is because at the end of the day, you know, somebody did something to me. And it's like, might be true. The question is, do you want to stay there? And if 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 you like it there, then stay a victim. If you don't like it there, the only way I know how to get out of this is to turn that situation over to the only one who really can be the righteous judge and knows all of the events and all of the motives and all the elements. And the question is, can I put that situation, that person, that that event, that, that very harmful, terrible thing, can I put that in the hand of God? And can I say, would you be the judge on this one? I'm going to turn this case over to you because I think if I keep holding it, I'm going to get messed up and I'm going to stay stuck. And so to me, the the thing I I start to, to, to go towards is how do I actually extend forgiveness to dirty, rotten, scoundrel perpetrators who meant to do it and haven't repented yet? It's like, you know, it's like, I don't care what it is. I mean, and and the truth is, is I can extend forgiveness even if they don't say they're sorry. I can extend forgiveness. I mean, I, I know a ton of people that have gone through really, really bad, tough stuff. And, you know, I'm I'm there picking up their bloodied life because someone else actually beat them to a pulp. And I'm inviting them to say, hey, let's turn this moment over to the living God because it's kind of too difficult for us to sort through. And let's let him start to heal you. And let's 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 put this justice demand in his category as the righteous judge. And I, I usually try to unveil the heart of God as someone that they can absolutely trust. There's nothing. There's not a single thing that happens in this world that you're not going to have to give an account for. I mean, when I stand in front of him, every thought, every word, every deed, we will transact. And so, you know, the whole deep repentance thing, deal with it now or deal with it later. <laughs> you know, And my, 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 my motive right now is let's deal with it now. <laughs> you know, and, and then the measure I use will be measured against me. And so it's like, okay, so if you want to if you want to consider someone's actions unforgivable, that means that anything that relates to that in your life is remains that way too. So is that is that what you want to do because God really is um a very fair, honest broker. And so you set the standard. The the measure you use will be measured unto you because that's a God of justice. And it's like most of us are going like, well, I want mercy for me and judgment for them, right? And, and, and that would be good, God, right? You get them. And it's like, no, if you want mercy, you have to be someone who extends mercy. And I think the biggest problem for people who are wounded is they think that somehow if I forgive them, that's saying that somehow it was okay. It's not saying that. And, and I know it feels like that, but it's not saying that. That is not what's being asked of here. Because if you're wounded, that was some lack of love that that, that came into that situation. And, and that's not okay. That's why there's damage here. But we're saying is I'm going to give for 
I'm going to forgive. I'm going to give this situation for someone else, the judge, the righteous judge, to then deal with it as only he can most appropriately. I'm not going to try to do his job. I'm going to say it was wrong. It hurt me. And I'm now going to put it on your docket as something that you, as the judge of the universe, then needs to deal with. And and he will. And and what that what that does for me is that places me in the place where God can then focus on healing, as opposed to the measure that I use being measured unto me. If I have turned that thing over in mercy, watch what God does in terms of just taking the load of rocks off your back. I mean, I I told I told you of an experience that I was talking about somehow the, you know the, the how we were given the authority to with the keys of the kingdom that we can bind and loose as part of being the church. And I'm talking about this thing, forgiveness, and I'm, I'm not going to give all the details here um, to, to, to spare the living, but um, in the midst of my message, there was a guy that started to walk down the center aisle and he had horribly raped someone I really cared about. And he he knelt down in front of me. And the Lord was basically saying, nice sermon, Brad. Why don't we apply some truth here? And I'm going like, you are so brutal and unkind, God. I want to kill this man. I really do. I really, really do. I have, I, I have wanted to hunt him down, and I have wanted to harm him. And now he's kneeling in front of me, and he really is repentant. And I'm really trying to say, yeah, but it's not that easy for you. <laughs> and and I just, I knew, it's like, oh my gosh, wow, God, you love me, and you love him, and you love everyone else involved. They don't know who this guy is, but they know me, and they can realize I'm having a seriously difficult moment watching him walk down. It's interrupting the message. And I stop and I kneel down and I and I told him, I said, I forgive you. I release you into the hand of the Lord. And I forgive you. I'm in tears. He's in tears. And I got to tell you, I had no idea the deliverance that it would work on my heart of turning that situation over. I didn't need to be the executioner. I didn't need to be the guy that sets wrong things right. I, I didn't need to do all of that. I could actually hand that to someone I do trust, the, the living God, and I knew that he would deal with that. I also knew that if I chose not to, his life would forever be um, impaired, as would mine. And it wouldn't change anything of history. It, it, it wouldn't, it wouldn't uh, erase the event that happened. It wouldn't heal the event that happened. Frankly, it would cause it to be infected and just continue to stay worse. But in letting that moment transpire and put it before the Lord and say, I will, I will release this. I released myself 
that's not why I did it. But in hindsight, I'm going like, wow, that's a great incentive to just go like, I don't want to hold on to this. Because it's it's like unforgiveness is like trying to set out rat poison and then drink it yourself. That's a good analogy. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, it's, like, it's like it doesn't it doesn't work that way. It's kind of like I'm the only one that it harms. And so I, I don't I don't know if that fully answers because, you know, I, I think for most people, generalities kind of suck. But the reason I bring up that moment is that would be one of the things you'd probably most people would put in the category of unforgivable. God doesn't have that category. I think that's the big one right there, Brad. God doesn't have those categories. And I think that's where we have to remind ourselves, especially in this time. We're in such an incredible time of transformation. We're in an incredible time of of testing and sh- and shedding and shaking. Um, we were witnessing a lot of pain. And, and at the same time, within all of this, I think one of the most amazing moments in human history is that there's not a soul on this earth that hasn't now had to come confront their relationship to either God or the state. It's literally a valley of decision. And every heart has been touched by this from the masking to the pandemic, to the economics, to everything that continues to unravel. Every heart is being put in that crucible and every heart is now being faced at that valley point of decision to go one way or the other. And the, the answer truly does rest in forgiveness. Um, we are seeing an emergence of child sex trafficking, for example, and we're going to now have to, as a people, start to confront the true nature of evil as this continues to unravel. And we're going to have to start looking to each other and let that pit, these pieces go the division of where you can't come to dinner because you didn't wear a mask. That's trite and it's trivial. And it's things that I think God has done intentionally for us now to each of us have to come, come together to start to really realize a, a deeper meaning of forgiveness because the things that are coming at us, we will not survive if we don't stand together. And I truly believe that. And I, and I, you know that in my six week journey across the country, one of those key messages is we have to heal first nations and last nations. And one of the other key messages is you have to learn to walk intimately with Christ. And those two things right there, if we aren't realizing what that's saying, and those were profound messages that God had me carry, is that if we aren't literally coming together, what is coming at you? We don't need to know. It's the same thing. Trust in the next step. We don't need to know what it is, but we know that it is a tsunami. It's either a tsunami that we can sit on, stand on the rock and lean into the winds and let it crash around us and know we're fine, or it's a tsunami that we turn our back to because we're so consumed with ourselves that we get washed off this this rock of sand and we get smashed into the side. Yeah. Um, you know, obviously, Father took this conversation into a more pertinent space than what you and I had thought we were going to be talking about. But I'm I'm recognizing right now there's sort of this is a a perfect preamble for getting into that because I I do think that you know we got what two and a half weeks before I don't know when this is going to air, but we get two weeks before the election. The selection, you know, whatever, whatever you think it's going to happen, um, we have some crazy things that could unleash before then 
we may have nothing that happens. And then how in the world do we we watch and interpret what's going on? I think if 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 you got half a brain cell, you're realizing what we think is happening versus what's actually going beyond is like God is exposing a massive amount of corruption. And it's not new. It's been happening for a long, long time. And I think what's happening in the Exodus 2.0 thing, I mean, if you think of of the Hebrews, they were slaves for 400 years before Moses kind of showed up. They didn't, they didn't know the living God. They had maybe, maybe a few of the elders had had remembered some generational stories. But they are in a horribly enslaved situation. And they they started with Joseph in a time of, of tumult and famine, and they were placed because of Joseph in the best place of the land. And then something was of, of, of a reversal happened, and they ended up enslaved, and they really didn't know who their God was. They they might have named, they might have, you know, spoken of him, but they didn't know his name, and they didn't certainly think he was there helping them. And then Moses shows up, and then you get this titanic clash of civilization of the living God taking issue with all the other false gods that frankly had enslaved everybody. And I, I want to kind of give Bard's Nation a little homework to say, you might enjoy going through the book of Exodus a little bit and asking Father to help start to show you stuff. Because I actually think it would be amazing for us to, to go through the plagues and really what was going on behind them. Because I've found it, um, ever since you and I started talking about this, stunning to witness what God is trying to reveal, who he's dethroning. And it's it's like a twofold process. For those that want to be delivered, he's delivering them. For those that want to cling on to the life they have and what they've known and all the things that they've worshipped, this is the most devastating, utter destruction that they ever will go through. And it's not God judging people. It's God dethroning false gods. And if you're joined to those, you won't be able to tell the difference. If you're trying to discover who he is, in the destruction that happens, you will be finding ever-increasing liberty and ever-increasing provision. Because the, like the, the one little hint I'll give you is in the first three plagues, everybody experienced them. From the beginning of the fourth one, God was showing a purposeful separation a distinguishment between the people that were his and those that were not. And the one place that they were safe and did not experience all the rest of the judgments was the land of Goshen. 
And that land means drawing near. And I got to tell you, if anyone's scared about the future, scared about what's going to happen, scared about all the things, I mean, it's like we really are coming to our Cuban Missile Crisis in the in the world where it's like we really are facing some serious, potentially bad things that would go on. And I don't think they're I don't think they're pretend. I think we're we're really there on the brink. But for the group of people that is drawing near to the living God, it is a great promise of great news that there is safety and protection. You know, Jesus, when he looked upon Jerusalem and he said, you know, how often I have longed to gather you as a hen would gather her chicks. That is being offered to us right now. I can make a beeline to Jesus and I can be drawn into a place of drawing near to him and dwelling where he is. I don't have to know what the storm's doing. I don't have to know all the calculus of what's the best things to do and all that other. I don't think anyone's ever going to be prepped enough for anything. And I'm diligent to do all that stuff. But the thing I'm going to be most diligent is I'm going to live near, I'm going to draw near, and I'm going to stay near him. Because that's the safest place to be. I live in Los Angeles. Everyone says, you better leave there. I'm like, no, no, uh-uh. I, I'm, I'm supposed to be here. And, and, and the moment that I'm not supposed to be here, he'll tell me. Because I'm going to be wherever he is in my life and my calling, my purpose. And that will be the safest place for me to dwell. And I really do. I think we're coming to a place where we're going to see some genuine cataclysmic judgments of false worship systems. And whatever's tied to that is going to be utterly devastated. Don't be tied to that. Find a way to get yourself loose. Well, Patriots, that concludes part one of the four-part series here with Pastor Brad Cummings. Let's pray. Father, in this time when is so much is changing and there's so much retraction back from this world, let us be reminded of our purpose that we are here as warriors in Christ to occupy, to expand, and subdue. This is a time, Father, more than ever that we need to be out in front speaking truth, speaking boldly the word of Jesus, and extending love in a powerful and mighty way as warriors in this world. We just pray for the courage, the guidance, the wisdom that you can bless to each one as we move forward in this war to subdue the enemy and to secure this kingdom that was blessed to the sons of men. Guide us, protect us, and we say these things in Christ Jesus' name. Amen. I think the biggest thing here we have to constantly remind ourselves of and rethink is what our role here is as Christians. We've been very much inculcated with an idea doctrinally that somehow that we're supposed to be passive and non-actionable. And I will speak more and more about this, but I believe that's completely wrong in the principles of how Scripture works and how our expectations are here on this in this world and our relationship with God and Christ. The second part of this interview will continue here in the next hour. I think you'll enjoy the next parts as we dig deep into the 10 plagues and how they were engineered to dethrone the idols and the idolatry of the Egyptian empire. 
So keep your head up and your eyes forward. Never bow to evil. Never relent. Always press into the fight. God is with us. He'll never forsake us. And in the end, God will always win. But we are here in this time, in this place, for just such a time as this. We're at war. So walk boldly and fearlessly with Christ. Occupy the land. Expand the kingdom. Subdue the enemy. Mission forward. I'll see you at Fishers of Men. Until then or until the next time, God bless and out for now. We shall pay any price, bear any burden, meet any hardship, support any friend, oppose any foe to assure the survival and the success of liberty. Every thoughtful citizen who despairs of war and wishes to bring peace should begin by looking inward by examining his own attitude towards the possibilities of peace. Too many of us think it is impossible. Too many think it is unreal. But that is a dangerous, defeatist belief. It leads to the conclusion that war is inevitable, that mankind is doomed, that we are gripped by forces we cannot control. We need not accept that view. Our problems are man-made, therefore they can be solved by man, and man can be as big as he wants. No problem of human destiny is beyond human beings. Man's reason and spirit have often solved the seemingly unsolvable, and we believe they can do it again. Surely the opening vistas of space promise high costs, and hardships, as well as high reward. So it is not surprising that some would have us stay where we are a little longer, to rest, to wait. But this city of Houston, this state of Texas, this country of the United States was not built by those who waited and rested and wished to look behind them. This country was conquered by those who moved forward and so will space. We choose to go to the moon in this decade and do the other thing, not because they are easy, but because they are hard. Because that challenge is one that we're willing to accept. The energy, the faith, the devotion, which we bring to this endeavor, will light our country and all who serve it. And so, my fellow Americans, ask not what your country can do for you, ask what you can do for your country. thousands of years to show its face. It has only one intent, to destroy God's light and to enslave. It has no scruples, it has no rules but one, to win 
at any cost. But we will never bow, for we are the remnant that will hold the line. This is war. We fight. We push. We climb. We never give in. We become the nightmare that evil didn't know could exist. We pray. We stand. We live by the words, in God we trust. We fear nothing. We are the light that can never be extinguished. We are patriots. We are the digital army that will help deliver God's wrath.